0: This is Graphic Novel TK, your podcast guide to comic book publishing.
1: Hi and welcome to Graphic Novel TK. I'm Gina Gagliano
0: and I'm Allison Wilkes.
1: Today we're talking about marketing, which is one of my favorite parts of the book process. It's all about getting books to reach readers, which is something that I think is super important. We are very pleased to have an amazing comics guest with us today, Tucker Stone, who's working over at Consortium. Tucker, can you tell us a little about who you are, how you got into comics and what you're doing now?
2: Uh, Yeah, I'm Tucker Stone. And I currently work at a place called Consortium Book Sales, which is owned by Ingram, which is a giant company that owns lots of other companies, a bunch of them do books. And uh, I uh, am their comics, children's books and library marketing guy. That's my actual title is Client Marketing Manager, and what I specialize in is comics, children's books, and library marketing. Probably the biggest thing is I just moved to Minneapolis from after living in uh, Brooklyn for about 12 years and then living in uh, New Jersey um, in a place called Maplewood, New Jersey. Um, For about three years and so I just moved to Minneapolis in part because um, The consortium home office is here and also part because I just New Jersey, New Jersey and I didn't work out Um, And so I started professionally in comics in Brooklyn. I actually was a guy I wrote for a website um, called comiXology uh, which is now a much different website than when I wrote for it. when I when I wrote for Comixology, it was it had something called retailer tools and their whole business model, which was built off this thing they won in a they won some money from a business school for this idea they had and the idea was subscription management tools for uh, direct market comic book stores. Um, so the, uh, I, you have to remember that time period, right Gina when those when they first came along. Yeah. Yeah, So they they first came along and they were selling this thing so that like if you want to get Batman at your comic book store and your comic book store is still managing like your their pull list by like, you know, writing them down. Then this was like a digital management tool. And at the time they started, they also wanted to have like a cultural hub. And so their idea for that was that they had multiple columnists. I was their most frequent columnist. They had a few other people that were monthly, but I was actually a weekly person. And um, the other thing I did for them was they had teamed up with a gaming company and it was like a company that made uh podcast and radio shows that would air in, um, uh, I guess, comic book stores and video game stores. And so I recorded a weekly podcast for them, which I've never actually never met anybody who's heard it. But this must I have been this-
0: pretty early on in the, that timeline of comics-related podcasts, I mean, when was this?
2: Well, it was it – was, this is – yeah, well, this, this is over 10 years ago now. Oh, geez, um, yeah. And so this was – but it also was not a podcast that I, – I don't believe it appeared on Apple. It was a podcast that I would record and then I would send to this gaming guy and he would run it on their gaming networks that supposedly played this podcast like on a loop with other podcasts in video game stores. Um, and it was me talking about the top, I was at the top 20, I think it was the top 10, the top 10 most pulled books for the week in, um, direct market comic stores. And so it was always, it was always the same. It was always the top 10 DC and Marvel books. I think every once in a while there'd be like a walking dead book, but it, so every week I would just, and it wasn't an editorial podcast. It wasn't me like talking about content. It was just me exploring telling you what the numbers were so it'd be like our top 10 books of the week are batman 567 and then i would usually read like the first sentence of whatever the plot description was and then move on and i don't know i always was like why am i what and they (laughs) paid me for it but it was one of the things like why who would listen to this like this
1: is like podcasting original generation
2: yeah it was some og stuff but um i still remember the moment when um eventually i just and the thing is i just eventually just stopped doing it i never actually quit and nobody ever complained or said what happened like i just stopped sending them after a while and then i and i stopped invoicing for it. it wasn't like i just stopped doing it Um, at first I was like, I missed a couple of weeks. And then after a few months, I finally just was like, I guess I just don't do that anymore. I have no idea what happened to that particularly, but at the same time I was writing for comiXology. Um, and then that, uh, I'm not going to go through this level of detail for how my job changed, (laughs) but um, I interviewed a guy named Tom Adams, um, who had opened a comic book store in Brooklyn. And I liked talking to him and, he was very mean and I just enjoyed his, how mean he was. And, uh, and so after when I was editing the interview, I, he, part of the interview was, he talked about how he needed to hire somebody. And I was like, you know, I could use a job. And at the time he told me later on, he was like, do you he was it felt really manipulative that you basically asked for a job right after I had asked you to edit things out of the interview because of what I said. <laughs> and he said, so he felt like I was blackmailing him into hiring me.
1: So how did that work out for you, Tucker?
2: It worked out great. I, uh, you know, I mean, I, it worked out great because my wife agreed to it. Cause I, up until that point I had, I had like a, a regular job. I worked at an advertising agency and I worked a lot of hours and I had, you know, benefits and medical insurance and I was, you know, how old was I? I was, you know, in late twenties, early thirties. And, um, but I went to my wife and said, basically, can I take the job of a 15 year old working at a comic book store? Um, which is not to disparage working at a comic book store, but if you don't own a comic book store and you work at a comic book store, like as the guy who unpacks boxes, it's just not usually a job that like provides adult forward momentum. Um, but it worked out. I, wor- I worked at Bergen Street um, for seven years, almost the entirety of the time that, it, that Bergen Street existed. And I, by the end, I was the managing partner of Bergen Street. I was in charge of um, handling like basically all the, non, um, diamond supplied related product. Um, I did events, I did a promotion for events. I got a chance to really, you know, we've started publishing, um, comic books, We started publishing Michael Fife's comic books, and then eventually Chuck Forsman's comic books. I just had a chance to do all kinds of things that I, I never would have happened. Um, if Tom and Amy, his wife had not given me that chance. Um, I mean, it got a chance. I freelanced, I got, one time Image Comics hired me to come out to San Diego Comic-Con and fill in for a woman named Jennifer DeGuzman while she was having a baby. Oh, yeah. And so I was there like managing, you know, I got a chance to like manage, you know, this is the time you can come, Playboy Magazine can come and interview Brian K. Vaughn about uh, Saga and that kind of thing. Like it was a really incredible experience. And I got a chance to meet, that's where I I'm, met I'm Gina at, uh, I met Allison at uh, Burger Street Comics. Um, it's true. I got a chance to work at different comic book shows. Um, I can't even keep track of how many different artists and authors I got a chance to meet because this was a store in Brooklyn, New York in a a particularly easy to get to part of Brooklyn, New York. (laughs) Um,
1: It turns out there's a lot of comics people who are in Brooklyn and adjacent boroughs.
2: Yeah, sleeping there, drawing there, creating there, even at some point printing there. Some people were actually printing comics still in that area. Um, But yeah, it was great. And then at some point I started freelancing for a company called No Brow. Um, who at the time were only in the UK and they didn't have U.S. distribution. And then they got U.S. distribution, but they still didn't have anybody on the ground. And so um, they hired me. Yeah, they hired me to go to Book Expo. And I had this one marathon conversation with the guy who, uh, Sam Arthur, who started No Bra, where he, it was like two and a half hours long, where he just walked me through every single book up until that point that they had published in one base, it was like one unbroken monologue. (laughs) <laughs> um, and I remember like writing notes after notes, I had this legal pad that I just wrote pages and pages and pages of notes. And then I went to BA and had to just talk about those books. And that eventually became a job. Um, a guy named, the other guy who started, uh, no a guy named Alex, and he came over to the U S and met with me and, and we went out to dinner and we kind of, we got, we liked each other and we talked about opening this company. And so we opened no U S in manhattan and then i ran that for for almost exactly four years um and that was i left that job last year when consortium came and ingram came and offered me a job um doing what i do now which is basically helping you know doing uh, marketing you know it's in in a sense for publishers i'm in the marketing team at consortium there's four of us um and but i specialize i work with the comics people and i work with a lot of people that i've You know, I think people who listen to this podcast probably know, like Ann Koyama, who runs Koyama Press, Tom Kaczynski, who runs Uncivilized Books and Odd Odd, um, Spike Trotman from Iron Circus, uh, Andy Brown from Conundrum, um, and then, you know, Tune Books, which is Francois Millet and Kimberly Geis. um, And those are just the people who run them. That's not even counting the amount of authors and artists and creators. And um, yeah, and so that's that's what I do now. That's what I... uh, that's how I ended up here. Um, so essentially every single one of my jobs is based around me meeting somebody and talking to somebody and then them remembering me later on when they actually had uh, a job that they needed filled.
0: I mean, I think that's how most of comics goes most of the time.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
0: Which can be a little terrifying sometimes when you're like, how did I get this?
1: Okay, sure. If you want to hire me this job, that's fine. Or if you're mm-hmm. very young and you're like, how do I get to be that person who people remember, especially if you're not physically near the people that you want to be remembering you. So this episode of the podcast is all about marketing. So for people who are kind of new to the book process, who are new to having a publisher where there's a marketing person, like what is marketing? And it's something that I think can be pretty hard to quantify and sometimes also different at other publishers.
2: Oh, yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, I I remember meeting, I was at a, like a cookout thing, like the one of the last years, the last year I worked at No Brow, and I was talking to a woman who worked at um, Penguin in the cookbooks part of Penguin, and she worked in the marketing or publicity. I, I can't remember if it was marketing or publicity. I think it was marketing, though. But so I was talking to her just about, the logistics of what she did. And she said, well, my team's responsible. I think she said my team's responsible for 20 books a year. And I was like, how many people are on your team? And she said she had four people. And I was like, so you and four other people have 20 books in one year? And she was like, yeah. And I was like, God, you know, I got 44 books in a year and no brown flying eye. And it's me. It's me. Yeah. I mean, there's another person but he's pretty heavily loaded with like the logistics stuff, like getting it yeah. in, getting it out, you know, you know, that kind of thing. And I was like, just the idea of I mean, we talk about those dramatic differences between publishers. It's like, yeah, like when you and I first started talking about this, I have a hard time in my head separating out even now. I'm um, separating out marketing and publicity because for me, so much of that stuff kind of comes to play. It's like, what do, what do I do in the marketing side um, as opposed to sales And that is how do I get people aware of these books? How do I make sure that these books are basically described in such a way so that the people who are going to be interested in them either to write about them on a publicity side or to purchase them for their store are going to understand them? So how do I figure out how to talk about these books in a way that it will make sense to people who have not read them or will not be reading them or will not have time to read them? For me, marketing is... I need to describe why you want this thing. And and, and part of that conversation is me also figuring out what this thing is um, without it going full capitalist and turning into just me turning things into products.
1: Yeah, and I think also that marketing can be pretty confusing depending on what publisher you're working with. Like I've been Mm -hmm. at places where... There was one department for marketing and publicity that reported up to the same person Mm -hmm. and then also places where marketing and publicity were two different departments that didn't have a lot to do with each other that like occasionally interacted but like weren't the same thing.
2: Talk to me more about that. So so. What is that like? How do you, how do you figure out is it just everybody knows what their roles are already? Is it just so clearly defined?
1: Yeah, it's really it's really interesting because I think it can be super different just depending on who is running that department. You know, there's there's a lot of different metrics I think for splitting up what marketing is and what publicity is. I mean, one of them is that publicity is stuff that you don't pay to get. You know, so it's like Mm -hmm. things that you can set up that don't involve a fee or don't involve some sort of like internally generated service. Right. Um, So the other way to kind of parse this out is that is by talking less ideologically and saying like publicity is media reviews, all of that sort of thing. And it's uh, events that you set up for free. Um, whereas marketing is kind of the other half of the relationship, where it's like advertising, it's social media, like using your in-house tools, and then on the back end of it, it's like working with your your retailers and developing those retailer relationships.
2: It makes sense to me. That, I, that that's actually the, probably the easiest definition I've heard of it. Because yeah, marketing is going to be that budget. And it's going to be the budget that I have for. Sending people around the country for doing a tour. It's going to be the budget I have for my participation in something like Children's Institute or Winter Institute. Yeah,
1: conferences and conventions are a big thing. Yeah. yeah. So, what do you think the most important parts of book marketing are?
2: I don't know. I think that's that's that. I think that's kind of an impossible question to answer. Probably. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, I mean I have I, I kind of always looked at it like uh, there's this like skeletal thing that I have to do for a book in the sense that some of my books I'm gonna have it's gonna be easier to sell than others. Some of them are gonna have some kind of topical quantity you know uh, quality that like is gonna make it really easy to get lots of coverage, make it really easy to get um picked up publicity wise and then other books are gonna have a thing where it's all about what I'm gonna pay. For. it's all about how am i going to get this book like they're not going to carry this book unless i pay like a heavy co-op fee at barnes and noble and get it on an end cap
1: can you um explain to us what co-op is
2: co-ops uh, so, so my understanding of co-op has always been like it's it's basically the pay-to-play kind of stuff you know if you want to have a book at barnes and noble and you want to have it sitting on one of those you know uh
1: like an end cap or, or a table at the front of the
2: store yeah, our, our hot titles of the summer, that kind of thing, then you're going to pay for that. You're going to pay um, some kind of fee, uh, you know, a buck a book or whatever it's going to be for it to be. And, and the the thinking being that instead of them buying one and putting it spine in, they're going to get, you know, fives and sixes. And those fives and sixes are going to sit on a table. And um, anybody in retail is always going to tell you the things that sit on tables facing up that are in a stack. People automatically assume that these things must be better than the things that are spying in in one copy. Um, yeah, and there's g-
1: a there's an element of choice to that, too, right? Like, you can't just be like, hello, I have these 44 titles at No Row. I would like them all face out on the table, Barnes & Noble. Mm-hmm. If I give you, you know, a dollar a book for them, you'll do
2: that, right? Yeah, no, it's not. Like, with Target, for example... Um, with um, no brow flying eye, but with any children's book, pub, any graphic novel publisher, like you push as hard as you can to maybe see if you can get this into Target, get this into one of those mass marketplaces, um, knowing full well that, you know, it's not going to pan out. The same thing with Barnes & Noble. You're going to pitch everything to Barnes & Noble and it's not going to all pan out. But being ready to say yes when it, when it is is kind of important. I mean, the last thing you want to do, especially with, I mean, I've seen this happen, say, yeah, we're selling all this stuff. We want you to buy this book. And then they turn around and say like, okay, well, we want 9,000 copies. And you go, oh, you know, well, I only got like four printed so far. Like you don't want to make it, you got to be ready to pull the trigger. And those kind of decisions have to be made in a marketing prior to a print run. They got to be made enough in advance. So you're factoring in that this might be what you need to do. But then on the, there's also much smaller co-op with some co-op can be um, really successful independent bookstores that might have like a holiday gift guide that lots of their customer base actually responds to um, bookstores out in Chicago. that just have like a really popular in cap and table display and they may turn around and say, you know what we bought this many copies and we put it in a display by the register as one of our favorite books of the season and we want $50 for co-op and it's, it may be small ball, but it, it still counts. It still matters. And, um, So that's another form of of co-op. But I think, I mean, co-op for us, yeah, I think it goes to, like, the big guys saying, like, we want to – well, then I'm leaving out one thing, which is Amazon co-op. You know, they pay – there's all kinds of that stuff for Goldbox. There's tons and tons and tons of Amazon co-op.
0: There's, like, a whole thing of, like, when you click on a book or buy a book, they're like, hey, you bought this book. Maybe you want to buy one of these five other books. And, like, that's not entirely generated by their algorithm that's also sometimes – people who are like targeting specific types mm-hmm. of buyers, right? Is my understanding of these things anyway.
2: No, that's absolutely true. I mean, some of that stuff is pretty nefarious with how it all works <laughs> and some, some of it's more upfront, but I mean, we all know how that stuff works. I mean, like, you know, the ads that you see on Instagram are not going to be the same for every different person. And if you see a book on Instagram, you know that the person who is selling that book I mean, of course, now I'm I'm kind of mixing two things, you know, that's, that's more getting into advertising and not co-op. But, um, but yeah, I I would say co-op is also just a form of
1: placement advertising.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's just a form of advertising in in like the big general terms.
1: So Tucker, can you talk a little about on a day to day basis, what a person who's doing marketing does?
2: Well, again, I think it I mean, I can, I'm only going to speak from my experience. And my experience is, I'm not somebody who has worked at uh, big five publishers. I've not worked at that kind of level where marketing is my full-time job and I haven't worked you know extensively with someone where marketing is their full-time job. Um, everybody I've worked with has been in smaller comic publishing, smaller independent children's book publishing, and a few different independent, um, just traditional publishers. And in that case, marketing has usually been, it's been part of a job. Um, but I would say the day-to-day stuff is it's a lot of forward kind of planning what you're going to do and what you're able to do and what you're willing to do for a book that you think is going to work. Um, and then it's executing that plan when the book actually arrives when the time comes. And so it's, you know, it is, it is kind of going through that initial list of a book, like a season. Um, you know, I, I work, pretty much most of the time on a two-season cycle. And so it's at some point going through an experience of like a, a pre-sales experience with books, and at that time kind of saying like, we think this one would benefit most from uh this is a gift book, for example, so we're not going to be relying on a lot of reviews to get it out there. We're going to be relying on spending money to get this in front of people, to have this at New York Now or in various other gift shows, to uh, put this book together with a subscription box or something like that so it gets out there to people and you know, some type of online advertising so that the people are aware of it in advance of um, its release, um, a heavy print run you know if it's a gift book it's going to be finished copies that we supply to sales reps far enough in advance so that they can take that on their sales meetings that's just kind of an example of some of the forward kind of planning you would yeah. do for uh, in a marketing thing and then the the other part of the job is then going to be executing those things making sure that y- you had that material you have all that information so a lot of that becomes having a conversation with your production staff making sure you know from the editorial p- point of view are these things happening is this book On its way to conclusion am I gonna have it in time to meet these dates I mean the nice thing I think about um, the non-creative side of books is that some of this stuff is really built around logistical decisions like if I'm not gonna have the book in time to do an advanced print run for a show then I've answered the question of whether or not I need to worry about that book for that show you know you can't go to a winter institute, and not have material when an author is there signing. You need that finished book. You need a galley at that show. If it's not done in time, you don't have to worry about it. So that's the nice thing about marketing in in the art arts field and the creative field. It's hard to know when you've done your job. You could always do more. So it's nice to have those like firm lines of like, well, if I don't have this, then I don't have to worry about it. You know, it's not gonna yeah. happen. Um, But so, what is a day to day? Day to day is a lot of calendar management. It's a lot of production management and it's a lot of planning. You know, Gene and I, you know, we've talked before about our various obsessiveness with organization. And a big part of marketing is that you really need to know because you need to know what works. You need to know, like, when we've spent this kind of money before and this kind of title, has it resulted in what we needed it to result in? If we need to get a book out there to fourth grade teachers who are looking for just, you know, a book that's going to work as like a discussion book, what has worked to do that before? I mean, a marketing job is not answering the same questions over and over and over again. You really kind of want to answer them one time, have examples, and then kind of build on that and move forward. Um, I mean, I always kind of was always looking for what is the stuff that I always have to do for every book or what are the questions I always have to answer about every book? I may or may not have to do those things. But, mm-hmm. you know, I mean. Uh,
1: Is this a book to pitch to the Indie Next list?
2: Yeah, exactly. Is this book by somebody who qualifies for these awards? Then I submit it for those awards. I don't want to have to think about those questions in too much detail. I I, I mean, I, my thing was... um. And I've used this a million times, and I just still use it, and I still update it, and I still send it to my publishers even though I don't use it You know, – I'm not sending books out anymore. But it's like I go through this one giant checklist, and I just go through – as soon as I have enough information about what a book is, I don't need to read it. I just need to know the metadata you know, the logistical metadata of the description, and then I can go through and say, okay, these people I'm not gonna contact because it's not this is not their kind of book. This is not a kid's book, this is a nonfiction. So here's all the things I'm gonna have to do. If it's a book that I know I'm not gonna have an author for, my entire checklist of tour questions, I can skip all of that and I can just move on. A lot of that stuff was a stuff I had to come up with by necessity because at No Brown and Flying Eye, you had forty titles a year. I you can't reinvent the wheel On 40 title, you know, on every title, you just can't, you're going to go, you're never, you're going to fail and other titles are going to suffer. And so I had to have that core group of like, these are the questions I answer. And I got to answer them as soon as I can. So that when the book actually arrives and the clock is ticking. I mean, I found with books that the further out I could start the work, the higher my initial orders were. And the higher my initial orders were, the larger the back orders, the, the more successful the book was. It all trickled down from there. It was really hard when a book had really small initial orders to fix that in the long run. That book ended up not backlisting well and ended up not doing what I needed it to do. And the the best way to get initial orders up was starting all of that work far enough out in advance. And so that when the time came, because that's the other thing is like you never know what's going to happen with a book.
0: And what timeline are you talking about here? When you're talking about initial orders, like how long before publication is this?
2: Well, in my experience, initial orders start anywhere between nine months to a year in some cases. I mean, most most things for us actually, because we were, we're small time, were ended up being like six months out is when I start to see the actual orders come through because that's when, you know, Barnes & Noble initials start to come in. I mean, Amazon estimates you know, kept changing. They now don't even exist really until much closer, but Barnes and Noble's like six to eight months out. Um, mass merch, like, you know, target and all that kind of stuff, six to eight months out. Um, and then you get into all like the smaller educational wholesalers, the smaller, you know, the Baker and Taylor's, the Ingrams of the world, all that kind of stuff, all that stuff starts to come in about three, four months out. And so y- you're just building this one number up until the date when you kind of like, when you flip the switch and you start shipping out the copies um so the higher that initial number was the better the books did i mean that sounds obvious but it really was a dramatic like exponential difference in terms of how high i could get that number up versus what i tried to do after a book after a book's out it's you know it's, it's, it's 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 all catch up you're just catching up it's everything is the advanced work.
1: Yeah. And when you mentioned pre-sales before at the beginning of this conversation, that's a meeting that you have about a year out, just to clarify. Yeah. and yeah, yeah. That, That's like the thing that kicks everything off where you are, you go to this meeting, it's with publishing and editorial, and they're like, let's tell you about the exciting books that we'd like you to market for us. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, okay, here I go to get to put all this stuff in place to get these orders
2: and well and it's also for us that that was always that's always the chance when somebody comes out and says like this cover's not going to work
1: yeah a very important part of marketing to be like so you've made this choice but in fact possibly we could sell more copies of the book if you're talking about it differently the cover's different we're portraying the author differently we're thinking about the presentation in a different way
2: Well, and there's sometimes when you have a book, too, where, you know, somebody just makes a, a, you know, you're so lost in the weeds that you kind of need somebody else to go like, you know, actually, if you ship this three weeks earlier, then then it'll it'll actually be in stores in times for Father's Day. And you're like, oh, yeah, that's like a major component of this book. Stuff like that seems obvious, but it's like you need to know when when do they do sell in for if you have a book that has like a bat on it or it has not like a bat. (laughs) That well,
1: that is good for Halloween. I just went to a whole presentation today about like the Halloween sale season this year. So it's a yeah. major retail moment.
2: And you, but you need that person in there to say like, look, this is when I don't know Bed Bath and Beyond buys for holidays. These are the months that they purchase them in, and so you want to look at that schedule and say, okay, honestly, are we going to have advance that we can supply? For that particular time, because if you're not, they're not going to change the rules for you if they do it in April and you're not going to have it till June. It's not like they're going to be like, oh, well, we'll we'll give you we'll give you a shot like they're not going to do that. And those kind of conversations I find pre-sales is I always look at pre-sales as like it's super, super important. And I didn't understand really at the beginning how important it was. I mean, I always looked at pre-sales when I first started at Nobrow as like it's almost like I'm trying to turn in my homework and so I was more obsessed about getting it done prior to this call when at the same time it was like pre-sales was where – that's the chance where you have everybody in the room talking for one minute and you're all ready to like fix stuff. You're going to figure out – and so the more information they have, the better their feedback's going to be and the more likely you can change it. And if you go into that meeting and the feedback is like the most – I mean, at first, you know, when I was dealing with it, I always found that like the feedback was super generic and super repetitive. And I realized over time, it's because I'm not proving that I've got, I've answered those questions. Like if you walk in and I always remember there's this one thing that I deal with now is like leveling books for the common core, getting the information for guided reading levels for children's books, which is like a staple thing that like it's helpful to library wholesalers.
1: And can you just unpack that a little if people don't know what leveled reading is or the common core, honestly? I know because my
0: sister's a teacher, but
2: (laughs) (laughs) it's the educational standards that are used throughout the United States. And so it's information that is basically says like, what part of the curriculum does this book apply to? And so Uh, and it has all all these other things too. Basically it's how like when you go into like a, a, a school library or something like that, they're like, this is where our, our books are that tie into that part of the common core, whether it's, it has a connection to the math part or the science part or, but most of the time for what I was dealing with, it has to do with reading levels. It has to do with like, if you're at this, you can do this in terms of that's where the books are categorized. So they have a bunch of kids who are in the second or the third tier and it's time for them to like read a fourth tier book or whatever. It's, it's a it's a unified standard across the country. It has all kinds of like anything else involving the American educational system or American bureaucracy. There's a lot of like nonsense surrounding it, and that has nothing to do with my job. The politics surrounding it yeah, has nothing to do with it. my job. Is to find out where these books slot in, and so that when the teachers have that question of I need books that fit these part of the Common Core strands, it, it, which is just another way of organizing information i've done that work for them and so they just have to look and say i need books that fill this you know it, they're the categories are usually longer than this but say it's just like category a a3 i've got all the graphic novels that we publish that are in that a3 category i've got all the picture books that are in that a3 category so they're just looking for those kind of books they find my books are like that if you haven't done that for your books then you're not going to come up on that list and they're not going to buy your books and they're not gonna be in that system. They may still buy your books because they're cool or because they follow Noelle Stevenson on Twitter and they really like her, but it's always a bad idea to hope that your books get found that way. It's better to just do all the groundwork so that everybody can find him who might be looking for them in the middle of the night when they're like, I gotta get something different because if I read you know, that Duckling book one more time, I'm gonna start screaming. Like, it's, So you wanna have that information for them available. I wish I'd realized it after the first, but after two or three pre-sales calls, I realized I was like, well, that lady is always going to tell me to level my books, and that's always going to be her feedback because for her, that's the most important thing, and she needs to make sure that I'm going to do it. And so if I just prior to the pre-sales call include, yes, we're going to do that then she's able to give me that next level of feedback. She's able to give me something more insightful and useful that I can then build off of. And I can get better at this. I can understand it more. And we can move past what I would call, and and genius, you heard me use this word before, but where I can get past like the one-on-one stuff. Because the one-on-one stuff, it's just gonna keep coming up. People are gonna keep telling you to do, you should send your books to publishers weekly so they review them until you acknowledge, yes, I I know how to do that.
1: Yeah, so it sounds like, a lot of what a marketing person's job is, is not only kind of setting up events, communicating with authors, communicating with retailers, but also communicating with the sales team that you've got to give them all the ammunition that they need to get the books in the places that they're getting them.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think about this all the time with like the sales reps is that if you haven't given them the answers prior to the questions being asked, they're not going to stop in the middle of whoever it is they're selling these books to or repping these books to. They're not going to stop and text you and ask you these questions. They're just going to move on. They're going to move on to something that they can speak with, with knowledge and experience about. And in the case of sales reps, I think that's, that's a kiss of death. Sales reps need every single piece of ammunition they can have to sell a book. And if they don't have it and they get caught out and they get caught unawares, that's only going to happen a few times. Before they just go, you know what, I'm going to skip past this one, I'm going to move on to this other title I have where I know what I'm talking about. They're going to move, and then that's the only opportunity you have. There's a lot of these books, I mean, if you go into b and you don't have the material that they need, then they're not going to say, like, we'll come back in a couple weeks. Like They have nonstop meetings to buy books. They've got to meet with every major publisher. They have to meet with giant publishers like penguin who have a a ton of money and a ton of opportunities to pitch their books. And so when you get down to the smaller guys, like the ones I deal with, you may only have one shot. And so you really got to make sure that your, your sales rep is ready to go and ready to answer all that stuff. And they feel super confident in it because I mean, anybody who does sales will tell you that if you don't feel super confident in something, you may not get started on it.
0: So here's a very specific, very nerdy question about leveling books, do you literally do that yourself? Like you have a guidelines and you sit down with a book? or do you have somebody you work with? like how does that actually work logistically?
2: you pay somebody. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you pay some. Um, with somebody like Lexile who is just basically doing like word count stuff and like that kind of producing like a digital thing, you can send them a PDF and they can they just produce that information at feet. It goes directly into your Onyx feed and it shows up, you know. I mean that's great. This was great about Lexile that so you you don't have to do a whole lot. You get that information from them, add it to your your teacher's guides and your marketing copy and that sort of thing. So you can get that information out to the educational wholesalers, um, with the GRLs and common core strands. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that like large, large publishers have somebody who does that as a job, but for, for the rest of us, you just kind of, there's someone you pay. Her name's Marla. She's awesome. I, I, I emailed with her for three years straight and then I finally got a chance to meet her. And I actually, I did give her a hug. Cause I was just like, Oh my God, I didn't, <laughs> You forget that somebody's a real person after you email them that much and pay them that much.
1: <laughs> Tucker, can you unpack for us the mysteries of an Onyx feed?
2: Not really. I mean, I just know. I mean, I, I can unpack it in the same way that like, I don't know, like, I understand that whatever, I can't think of a good. Uh, the
1: water comes out of your faucet at your house. Yeah. Exactly. How does it do that?
2: Yeah, that kind of that kind of yeah, it comes from <laughs> it comes from a river, but um, yeah. so onyx, uh, onyx is the you you have an onyx feed that uh, ties into a, an ISBN and ties into a book, and however you as a uh, your publisher whoever your publisher is manages inputting that data, that's how Amazon that's where amazon gets an isbn and a cover and that description you write comes from when you have a new uh uh review for a book and you go and put that into your um whatever management tool um you it for my for for me because i work with um consortium and ingram uh we use core source core source is the is the metadata management tool we use and that goes out into the onyx feed and that goes out to all of the digital retailers and it goes to whatever catalog management system your reps might have um the one i'm most familiar with is idle and all these various things read parts of the onyx feed and then display that information online so if you want and so it's a way to just manage all of that information in one place because obviously you can't do that otherwise. You can't sit there and every time something t- happens with a book, you go to Amazon and change it there and go to Barnes and Noble and change it there and go to IndieBound and change it there. And then go to Powell's and change it there. You can't do that. Like it's just not yeah. It doesn't work that way. So for um, our
1: listening audience, if you've now become fascinated with the mysteries of the Onyx feed, it's spelled with an I. <laughs> o N I X. And you want to look at it. Yep. Yeah.
2: And okay. there actually are over on um was that lynda.com There's like a whole webinars about um, Onyx feeds and stuff like that, metadata management, um, which on the – like the super ground level is not going to be super useful. I mean independent publishing is only going to be able to handle like tertiary parts of that. But but yeah, I mean it it does become important because it's how – I mean the world we live in today, so much of this is going to be – Different digital services reading your onyx feed and then reproducing that information in a certain way So how you manage that onyx feed and what things read that onyx feed? um, I mean, it's just got a huge amount of importance in how your information gets out there again We just don't live in a world where people like really ask They just assume that whatever they see when they google something is the accurate information So you want to be able to manage that information properly?
1: Okay, so Tucker you go to pre-sales, or no, you go to the meeting before pre-sales, which is probably launch, or some, some sort of meeting that the titles get launched in. And the people at No come to you, and they're like, okay, Sam Bosma's Fantasy Sports Volume 1. We're going to publish this book. It's about fantasy. It's about sports. Make a marketing plan for it. Like, What, what do you do? What's the process of putting the marketing plan for that book together. <sighs> so thinking first, it sounds like
2: first, first I would take it to my checklist. Um, I would go down, I would, I would read – usually I'm going to have like a, an author questionnaire too, especially because with Fantasy Sports, that was the first book we did with Sam Bosma. And so I don't know him yet. I don't know where, where he lives. I don't know what he does. I don't know what he is willing to do. So I need to find out how involved this person is going to be in the book because that's going to determine – a whole raft of things that's going to determine whether or not we can do a tour. That's going to determine whether or not I can take this book to, uh, ALA, uh, annual. It's going to determine whether or not I can take this book to children's Institute. Um, because a lot of the, I mean, I can take this book without him, but I don't need to think about that right now. I need to find out how big I can possibly go. The first thing that happens with any book, especially on a book like fantasy sports, which, you know, we're, we've got a big number one on the cover, which means we want to have a number two. Um, so that first one needs to get out there to as many people as possible. And, uh, you know, Nobra at that time, um, was a lot smaller. And so we didn't do a lot of galleys, advanced galleys of books. And, but for fantasy sports, we did, which was difficult to do. It's a full color graphic novel. It's oversized. Um, and we didn't want to do something that looked too much like a mini comic. So we needed to print something, um, unique, quick, and, um and big that showed it off and that that was more money than I think at that point we really had like in a marketing budget for a book which was extraordinarily minimal that was That right there eliminated our entire marketing budget And so that means I have to go and I have to co- I had to come up with a powerpoint like a brief presentation on why I needed a much bigger marketing budget for that book because Otherwise, I'm basically going to spend everything on making this galley and then I'm not going to have any money for a tour and I'm not going to have any money for taking this guy to a show. I'm not going to, you know, I'm just not going to be able to buy any advertising or anything like that because I spent it on a book. And that's that's nitty gritty, but I can only really get nitty gritty because everything was so different all the time.
1: And it sounds like it's partially a lot of balance.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, at the same time, you're also realizing while you're doing this. What is this going to do to the other books I have coming out this same month? What do I have scheduled around this? What can I move out um, or move around so that fantasy sports, which I can tell already, because at that time we knew, we knew how much people like Sam Bosma, we knew how much the American media liked Sam Bosma, and wanted, we're going to want to talk about that book. And we knew it was going to be something that beefed up our profile with places that normally didn't pay attention to us. It was going to open up more opportunities for advertising that we knew that we needed to kind of have some space around that because that is going to cannibalize the attention we get for other books. It's going to cannibalize our efforts and work on those other books. And then the sales comes in because when you start moving books around, especially when you move them out of a publication month, it's messing with cash flow. It's messing with how much money, even if you, if you're, if you're a company that's built around having a certain amount of books come out in each month and you decide I'm going to move three of these books to other months, all of a sudden you have a month that that book better overperform, or you're going to have, you're going to have a drop in cash flow for that month when it comes through.
1: Yeah. With a company the size of NoBrow, that could actually be like a a business problem. Like, do we have enough money to like be paying for the printing that we need to be paying for this month?
2: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's always that kind of. You have to think, and and those things become decisions that involve more people. And when decisions involve more people, and those more people are in a different country, and they have a different time zone, and they have different workloads, and they have different projects, all of those things mean meetings. They mean budget discussions. They mean all this kind of stuff. And some of those you don't have to make. Some of those are not your job. You know. Basically, you are not the one who who decides whether or not it's okay to make this financial call. You're just the one who is making a decision. That means another person has to make a financial call. So in my point, it wasn't up to me to determine whether or not this is okay, but it was it was up to me to make a pitch about why I thought we should try. That part of marketing, it has a stimulating effect on everything around it. It changes a production timeline. It change, And all of those decisions have to be made, like we are talking about earlier, they have to be made far out because you're talking about books that you're going to be printing and publishing next year, books that you're going to be selling next year. You're, and when you're talking about cash flow, you're talking about cash that doesn't actually come in that month. You don't get paid for June in June. You know, you get paid for June months later.
1: So marketing is a very collaborative process, right? So like you've got, you've got you, but also the editors, the publishers, the salespeople they're all kind of like coming in and out of a lot of facets of your decisions.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And is that, is that typical? Is it typical that you'd have other people either telling you what to do or talking to you about what they want to happen and kind of working with you on that? Or uh, is, is the job kind of like driven, driven by you and other people kind of like fade in and out?
2: And I think I think everybody's involved all the time. You're just maybe not aware, you know, I and mean, it's it's tough to keep in your mind how much this stuff is, you know, being built around other people's work, um, especially in a situation like the one I was in prior to this. I mean, I, one of the most exciting things for me about this making this move to Minneapolis has been a chance to be in the same room as my team, you know, to actually to have regular contact with the people who we are doing this stuff together. It is just a completely different animal than having regular status calls and check-ins and working remotely. Um, you know, and that's, that was, that's the nature of a lot of publishing these days. And I think that's hard to do because you do, um, Everything else everything else around you becomes like a faceless horde they're doing something they're doing the editorial work or the production work or whatever and you're making these choices and you have people you interface with but ultimately what's happening in that other office I mean it happened when I would go visit the no brow office in the UK it's like you actually you're sitting in the room where these decisions are now being made together and you you're watching the ball of that one book get bounced from person to person to person from workload to workload to workload and everybody's got a different kind of thing going on. Um, so, yeah, people fade in and out, maybe in terms of your view, but, I mean, they're all they're all involved consistently. I think that if you're doing this stuff and you're too much of a lone wolf, I think that kind of cripples your ability. It certainly crippled mine. Anytime I think that you are kind of hearing your own voice constantly, um, you're going to mess up. It's really hard to constantly assess your own capabilities when you're doing it all on your own.
0: So for instance, when you're, you know, you're you're thinking about how you're going to be presenting this book to salespeople or who are presumably going to be talking to booksellers or librarians. And so like, are you working with editorial to be like, can you write me a two paragraph description of this book? Are, are you kind of working with uh, the editorial or are you working with the author to kind of put together how you're going to be talking about this in the copy you're going to be using? Or
2: like, how does that work? In my experience, I, I pretty much wrote my own, copy i mean you have a catalog description from another person but uh over time it becomes something that you kind of you you do yourself because you know how you're talking to the sales reps you know what it is they need to hear i found that one thing that was really beneficial to me was to go to the author to kind of talk about to find out exactly what it was they were kind of going after in terms of making this book not every author is receptive to that interested in that um and some authors are just not they're not verbally gifted in that way they're not they're not able to really explain why they do what it is they do they kind of look at the in the thing they've made as the answer to any of those questions but when i when i could sit down and actually talk to an author that was always really really helpful because then it was like I, it becomes more about transmitting what it is they're saying to the sales team and giving them that kind of information um, in a way that is less uh, affected by my, maybe my. I mean, I'm doing this as a job, you know, and I'm doing it over and over and over again. I'm going to have crutches that I fall back on. I'm going to have shortcuts that I take mentally and verbally because I've just been doing it. I'm going to have words that I overuse. And so being able to talk to an author about why they made this thing that they made or what it is that impacts them the most. Um, it becomes a much more powerful way to talk about the book. I mean, I remember with with Nobrow, for example, uh, prior to me working full time with Nobrow, I worked in a store that sold Nobrow. I mean, we were one of the first stores in the U.S. to carry all of this Nobrow stuff. Back when they didn't have distribution, and you would order it from Chris Pitzer, and he would pack the box in his garage and send it to you. You know, like so. I remember the point. At when I was working in No Brow, after working there, I think a year and a half, when I no longer had on the ground experience talking to regular people at the comic book store about the books that I was talking about. When I had to go to a sales conference and I was finally just talking about books that yeah. had only ever been, um, that I just had no experience selling. And that was a much different, I mean, it was just much different. I didn't have as much confidence in my ability to talk about those books. But the year and a half prior to that, I knew what people responded to when they looked at um, the Hilda book. I knew the pages that they really liked. I knew the things that made people come back. I had on-the-ground feedback because I had kids come in and say what they liked. And that became part of my pitch. That became part of how I talked about the book. Um, And I remember that change as it was a very dramatic one and it was a difficult one. Because now I'm only talking to an editor who is working on 20 books. And they have their likes and they have their dislikes. They have their struggles and their non-struggles. You know, And they're now tasked with kind of encapsulating this thing and writing the back cover copy that's going to be printed there and chasing somebody down for a blurb. And they have time. They can give me 10 minutes, 20 minutes to talk about the book. And then I'm supposed to go and come up with a pitch for that to talk to sales reps. It's, it's different. It's a lot different. It's harder.
1: You brought up authors in this conversation. and mm-hmm. I think some of the listeners to this podcast are authors. Obviously, with marketing, a lot of that process is based on like what an author can do, what their audience is, what they're interested in doing with their book. How how is it good for an author to be involved in this process?
2: You know, dealing with the talent involved with books is always going to be kind of a roll of the dice. You never know what kind of people they're going to be. And in terms of how interested they're going to be in this part of the process, um, I mean, how politically they feel about turning their work into a a commodity that's sold. The main thing with authors is I just just wish authors – and I know this is hard. I just wish they knew the things that they didn't like doing and that they could be more confident and honest about not liking those things because it's not wrong or bad. Or annoying when an author doesn't want to do something that's not that is not bad there are so many things that an author can do to help market a book at this day and age the way things are with social media alone have changed so much the problem is when an author says they're up for anything when what they really mean is i i, I don't want to do like 17 different things <laughs> I don't want to do a tour. I don't want to do signings. I don't. I feel uncomfortable when I'm talking to my fans. I don't want to do interviews unless they're via email only. I don't want to do. I don't want to generate, you know, uh, content for a, a, a blog roundup. I don't, you know, I don't want to go online and send presale links to my book books via social media. Like whatever those things are, they don't want to do. They should just be upfront about that at the beginning because it makes things so much easier when you know that, when you're like, okay, good, we don't have to worry about that. Um,
1: yeah. And then you can develop a plan around that.
2: Well, and, and it also is like, if you don't want to do it, then you're not going to do it well. It's going to be a chore. You're going to hate it. You're either going to ghost me and disappear, or you're going to ghost your fans and disappear, or you're going to end up at a signing that's going to be really ugly. You know, it's just, just don't do it. Just don't, just don't participate. It's fine. It's fine. To, and it, it's also fine. There are a ton a ton of amazing authors who don't want to do anything, and that's totally fine. I, I love it when an author's involved because I don't think there's any greater medium of art where they have they have worked such a kind of magic to it. People understand, you know, they don't really understand the mental, intellectual mm-hmm. gymnastics, but like people understand how a book is written. They sit down and they write it. But when you're dealing with with comics, especially when you're dealing with comics by one person, it's, it's always going to be a mystery to people how these things were made. It's always going to be fascinating to hear somebody talk about their process and how they came up with a story. Always. It always is. Picture books, it's always fascinating to hear how somebody said, like, this was the thing I decided to put into words. This was the thing that I knew had to be drawn. This is how I found this thing and solved this problem. And I mean, I sat there last week at, um, this past weekend, I was at NCTE and I watched this children's books author with Chronicle. And part of his presentation was showing you the emails he had back and forth with his editor, Ariel Richardson, about how they changed the ending of this book and how they worked on the fact that they were like, should this book be a circular book or not? Should this book be an alphabet book? And like watching that conversation, you go like, this can only happen with this person in the room only, and it can only happen with this book. That can't be replicated with me talking about a book. It just can't be. It can't really be replicated by a critic writing a review of a book. It can only happen with the author. And so I, I think that that stuff is incredibly important, incredibly integral. And, and then, of course, there's all the kind of stuff that it's just not exciting. But if you have an author who's willing to do all the, the grunt work on social media, and that's going to move units, that's going to make people aware of a book, that's going to help.
0: What do you consider like actually useful grunt work on social media? Because I think that sometimes people can feel like they're just throwing spaghetti at the wall. But like as a professional in throwing spaghetti against the social media wall, like what do you feel like is actually useful things for people to be doing?
2: Well, I think with comics and people, I mean, I think, you know, in in Sam's case, I know Sam had a huge following. He still has a huge following on Twitter, even though I don't work for him anymore. He still has a huge following. (laughs) Um, Sam, you know, would put up process information. He put up stuff that would get people excited about the upcoming launch of a book. You know, I think... And that's, that's like a Twitter thing, you know? I mean, it's also posting, um, links at the right time. It's driving people to, you know, when a book is available for pre-sales or something like that, it's, and you want to build up your diamond pre-orders. Like the, the artist is invariably the best person for that. It's using whatever social media contacts you already, I mean, you know, if Neil Gaiman is somebody who regularly responds to you on Twitter because you're, you're an artist who did something that he enjoys or something like that, then that can have a result. Um, I think that, I mean, the, the problem is, and I found this, you know, personally too. Um, it's not so much what you do for the book; it's how active you are on social media on a regular basis. Um, you know, I mean, if eighty percent of what you do on social media is provide links to things that you made that you want people to buy, then yeah, that's not really work on social. It doesn't really. I mean, it really does need to be that seventy percent of the time you're sitting there, kind of going like, yeah, "This is what I'm into," you know, I'm. I, I'm live recapping whatever TV show it is that I like, that kind of thing. I mean, I, I don't know. It, that's I'm not saying that the grunt work of social media is creating like a social brand and being alive on social media. But I will say that a lot of times when I hear people complain about social media and how it hasn't worked for them, and even though they put in all this time, you go and look at what they're into. You go and look at their Twitter feed, and it's like, yeah, 80% of your Twitter feed is you telling people to go buy the thing that you made. Why would anyone want to follow that? That's like saying like that's like why would you follow like – I mean, I, I see it sometimes, but, like, why would you follow most, like, Delta Airlines? Do you think Delta Airlines is all of a sudden going to become, like, a cool friend you can hang out with later? Do you think Delta Airlines is going to turn you on to, like, a cool movie that you like? No. You know, Delta Airlines is going to promote Delta Airlines endlessly on their Twitter feed. And if you're on social media and that's all you do, then you're not doing it right. You're, you're just not. You know? you're, and that's fine. Again, don't do it. I've, I've been off Twitter now for a few months, and I like being off Twitter. It's it's nice. I'm taking a break and it's been great, um, but I'm certainly not going to go like, well, I came back to Twitter and I posted 700 links to, you know, my Patreon and like I don't understand why my Patreon isn't blowing up. Like, well, why would anyone care? You know.
1: So Tucker, what is a good timeline for authors to be thinking about this? When should they start? Be like, okay, marketing, and also maybe I should talk to my publisher and my marketing person there about marketing.
2: That should be part of the conversation after they've turned in a book. Generally speaking, like what is it – when do you want to do the cover reveal? You know, coordinating a thing like a cover reveal for a graphic novel with your publisher. Um, I mean if you're really big, if you're no, – the Jeff Kinneys of the world, they have like a whole schedule around that stuff and it is not decided by Jeff Kinney. Um, he, he's part of that conversation. but. But I think everybody else who's not working in that particular sphere, um, it's more something you talk about with your publishers. Like, when do we want to like get this information out there? Um, do we want to, you know, how, how do you want to drive traffic online? Where do we expect most of the sales for this book to come from? Um, if you're somebody who has a huge, um, social media presence on Instagram or something like that, then your sales are probably primarily going to come through Amazon. And so you're going to have your social media campaign be built around driving up Amazon pre-orders, pre-sale numbers. Um, you know, but if you're somebody who is, you know, looking to sell books into the school and library market, if you're, you're, you're chasing the the career of Raina Telgemeier, then I think you're going to talk more about like, well, what should I be doing to kind of promote this book? Who, what should I, what should I be doing on social media or when, And I think at that point, that's when you talk, hopefully you have a library marketing specialist who can say, well, this is what we're going to do. Maybe we're going to do an interview with, you know, Follett School Solutions or something like that. And that's going to be where we initially talk about this book and where we kind of like tease it a little bit and say, "Yeah, we've got this great graphic novel coming about a a little girl who who goes to magician school, but she'd rather play baseball. I mean, maybe that's where you have that conversation. Um, Yes.
1: Or head out to NCTE, the National Council of Teachers of English Conference.
2: Exactly. Yeah.
1: So you're talking about a few different kinds of books here, like books where people have more of a social media following books, where you're trying to get them out to the library educator market. Are some books more marketable than others or easier to market than others?
2: Yeah, definitely just depending on which, which kind of thing you're going after there. Um, you know, super, super niche graphic novels uh, drawn in a very, um, uh, figurative style, non-representational illustrations about, you know, difficult subjects are obviously your. that's going to be, that's going to limit who you're going to be able to market and sell it to. You're not going to sell that book to target, you know? I mean, you can try if you want, but I think that's a waste of your time. Um, If you have a book that's a 62-page, nine by 12, everything is done in like a really raw, you know, outsider art style. I mean, obviously, that's going to have a limited kind of that's going to be a limited marketing thing. Um, If you have a book that's 180 pages and it's 12.99 and it's done to Scholastic or first second size trim and it's about a little boy going to summer camp and making best friends with a vampire, then, I, then I'm then i starting to see that book as something you want to go after uh, schools or libraries. I think you want to go after the mass mass audiences, that kind of thing. Um, I think a lot of those questions kind of get answered by the content of a book. You know, you look at it and go like, oh yeah, I know where this one goes. And then other ones you go like, you know what, I'm not totally sure. And I think I'm going to have to find, you know, this. I mean, I remember working on the Autobahn book that Nobrow did. Um, that was the case where it's like, you know what, you know, I don't have any bird contacts. I have graphic novel contacts, but I don't have any bird contacts. And so I went to the Audubon Society. And I met with these people at the Audubon Society. And and again, it's like it's a really cool experience for them too because you're like literally like you're like I'm a guy from a British publisher. We're getting ready to make a giant graphic biography of John James Audubon. We're bringing it to the U.S. And they actually – like they had like some of their main people, their, their main bigwigs. They brought me into their conference room, which is over in one of those – it's in a historic building, one of the historic um, – Freemason buildings over, over in downtown Manhattan. And so I go to this meeting and I sat there with these people and I actually just told them the truth. I said, look, you know, I need help making sure that like doing the fact checking on this book, we need somebody who really knows their stuff. Um, and I need help with that. And then the reason I need help is because there is no chance that anybody else is ever going to do a John James Autobahn graphic biography. This is going to be the only shot because I knew that was true. This, this guy is not Che Guevara where they're going to do – where there's like six graphic biographies. He's not Martin Luther King where there's like seven graphic biographies. This is John James Audubon. I got the only one. So you guys got to help me do this really, really well. <laughs> and that was the right thing. Like they were totally on board. And they opened so many doors and did so much for me and I didn't pay them anything. I gave them a free copy. Well, they definitely know bird people. <laughs> yeah, because they're – and they're excited too. And that's that's the fun thing about working in comics and I'm sure Gina has a million stories like this. There's so many times where you're the first person that they've met who is doing something in this particular field. Like you're the first time they met somebody who's like, yeah, we, we make this stuff. And this is all we make. We make comics. We make graphic novels. And we're making one about this subject that you know more about than anybody else. And we want your help to make sure that we get it right. And yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty easy to do I mean, in terms of like making it happen.
1: Sorry, I'm thinking about if I have a follow-up question about some books being more marketable. Um, Well, I think it's also like sometimes authors can,
0: especially if you have friends who, for instance, maybe had a very marketable book, like maybe they did do that vampire summer camp book. That National Book Award finalist graphic novel book. And everybody early on figured out it was going to be that kind of book. And so it got a very specific kind of marketing and publicity behind it. And they're watching this and they're like, okay, well, my book is also with this publisher. And so I'm, you know, a responsible cartoonist. So clearly when my book comes up to bat, I need to make sure that I argue to get all these same things because these are the things that you need in order for your book to be successful. But of course it's like, well... It's not like a one-size-fits-all thing, like something that makes a lot of sense for your Vampire Summer Camp book isn't going to make sense for your zombie post-apocalypse, but also it's a meditation on joy book <laughs> that's drawn in charcoal <laughs> mm-hmm. on newsprint, Like, which might be a beautiful book that will change somebody's life, but... That's going to be a different marketing plan. So, like, you know, when an author is trying to trying to get perspective on this, like, what kind of questions should they be asking themselves when they're trying to? S- yes, or their editor, or you, yeah. the marketing person. Exactly, when they're trying to figure out where where should they set their expectations and and how should they be directing? Like, should they be furiously emailing every librarian they've ever met, or should they maybe be talking to their local gallery? <laughs>
2: I mean, I think some of the stuff does come down to, and I would never, I would never say this to an author, (laughs) Uh, but I I would just say like, there's a decision about trust that you have to make as an author and you have to make it long before you turn in the final draft and the book becomes a product. If you're going to get on board with these people, that means you're going to get on board and you're going to, you're going to trust that these people are going to do their jobs correctly. If you're going to be somebody who second guesses them and micromanages them down the line, these are regular human beings. And they will just, they will find a way to get around you. They may, they're still going to do their job, but they're not going to like it and they're not going to enjoy it. And people who don't like and enjoy what they're doing, that comes out in their work. And it may, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that you can't be, I mean, you can be a hard ass all you want, but it really just comes down to like, you can, you need to be a hard ass who respects and trusts the people that you work with. And if you don't respect and trust them, then you shouldn't have signed up in the first place. If you don't think that, You know, the people at Scholastic Graphics know what they're doing when it comes to marketing, but you think they know what they're doing with editorial and production? That doesn't make any sense to me. You either get on board with these people, you don't get on board with them. I wish artists were a little bit more hardcore about the negotiation um, prior to signing the contract. You know, I mean, I wish they were a little bit more deliberate there in terms of saying what they want, in terms of communication, in terms of expectation. Um, and on the flip side, I think publishers, it would behoove them to be far more upfront about what they're actually going to do and what they're capable of doing, you know?
0: I mean, it feels like a lot of the time it comes down to like, in terms of stuff that the authors can be doing, it's like, listen to the things that other people are telling you about, like what your age category is and like who they think your audience is going to be. And you might think, no, no, you don't understand. My book isn't an action story. It's actually a romance End. Or a zombie meditation on joy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if you feel really strongly about that, like you can talk to your editor and whatever, but if everybody you're talking to about your book is like, no, this is an action story, and people who want to read this are gonna want to read an action book, then like that's worth listening to. And likewise, like, you know, if everybody's like, this is gonna be a book for ten-year-olds and you're like, but my mom really liked it and she's sixty, and I really think that sixty-year-olds are gonna be the target audience for this, like maybe listen to them when they're like, you should probably be doing a lot of school visits, because I really think 10 year olds are going to be the main audience for your book.
2: No, I, I had a conversation with somebody today, and to, and I, you know, the example I gave them is that if you have an age category, and you say like, yeah, this book is for anybody from ages four to 50, and it was like four and up, and you're like, that's every bookseller and librarian and teacher knows that that's bullshit. They, 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 this is not how it works. They don't. They, they, if you go to somebody and you say, this book is for every grade, then they know that you have no idea. You don't know the answer because it's not for every grade. That doesn't mean that like if it's targeted towards fourth and fifth grade, it doesn't mean that sixth and seventh grade is out, and it doesn't mean that there aren't going to be aspirational second graders. Obviously, there's going to be, and yes, there will always be 60-year-olds who want to read children's books. Totally. That's totally true. But you have to focus. You have to be specific because the rest of the world... It's going to be buying this off of a spreadsheet, off of a categorical thing. They're not going to be looking at your cover because that's how educational wholesale works when you're getting into that part in particular market. And I mean it is it, – it's not – yes, 10-year-olds and 6-year-olds can – it's not like the same book. But that still means you need to focus on 10-year-olds if it's a book for 10-year-olds.
0: It sounds like you feel like maybe all ages is not the most useful in terms of marketing as a of an age category.
2: No, I mean, that all ages for me is like that thing that they came up with in comics because they didn't expect this thing to blow up. You know, they just thought like, well, we got to have something that separates this out so our real customers don't accidentally buy something that's for four year olds. You know, like that's. Like that's that's a a weird categorical dumping ground that doesn't make any sense. And you no, know, you know, if you went up to a, somebody who's like really into, and I work with a woman who is really into YA. It's her favorite kind of stuff to read. She's not interested in books that are. She calls them books for adults. I don't care. She jokes about it. You know, but if I walked up to her and said, "I know you're really into YA. Check this out," and I handed her a picture book, I mean, fill in the blank. What do you think's going to happen? You know, she likes to read YA. She's not interested in reading picture books. There's a specific thing there, and. All even ages. though
1: that picture book is for the four and up audience.
2: <laughs> yeah, even though this picture book apparently is going to appeal to everybody who's like 27 years old. Like, it's not going to happen.
1: Okay, so it sounds like calling your book All Ages is maybe one thing that authors shouldn't do. I don't really know that. I, I can't.
2: I'm trying to think of an example. I can't really think of something that an author has done that I thought actively hurt a book. Um, it's more crimes of omission. It's more, I mean, it's, it's frustrating when it, I, I, I can't tell you that I've had authors who said they were willing to do anything. And so I set up an interview and they said, Oh, I don't, I don't do interviews. I was like, okay, all right. <laughs> I had a, an author I worked with at one point a few years ago, who was, um, she's elderly. And so the last time she had done a book had been in the sixties, early seventies. And, um, she only wanted to do interviews with, um, uh, print newspapers and it's like "Ah, I can't really you know and it's like you kind of have to weigh your time it's like I don't really have the time to figure out how to have a non-condescending conversation where I explain that you have to be willing to do other things than print newspaper I don't have that time so I just had to be like okay well I guess we're not gonna I'm sorry I can't book you anything for you that you want to do um and she was upset with me and I, I had to just wear that that's just you know so yeah don't do that um Um, But I think a lot of it just comes down to just not participating is really the thing that most authors do. Because you know what, the thing about it is that I find more and more often is that the people that you might want to calm down, the people that you you or I might say to them, like, you need to relax. You're doing too much. Those people are never going to stop doing too much. They're always going to be like that. They're always going to go way over the top and be really nuisancy and annoying and everything like that, and it's not going to help sell their book, and it's going to drive them crazy. But they're just going to do that because that's how their personality is wired. The people that I have to really work on and focus on is this complete lack of confidence in their own work. Um, this unwillingness to like stand up and say, I made this thing and I'm proud of this thing and I, I want people to see it. Um, that's the hardest part in comics uh, for me is getting that is having that conversation. Um, I have that conversation more than I have any other conversation. It, It does frustrate me. Um, it's, it's something I don't miss about now that I have a more step removed from the process is the thing where I just like, I don't understand why you did it. This thing, these things are so hard to make. These comics, they're so hard to make. They're so hard to finish. They're so hard to get published. They're so hard to sell. There's so few people out there who want them in terms of like it's not millions of people, it's just not, you know. And so when you have somebody who's done all of that hard part, the hard part of making the thing, and then they just don't want to show up to tell people about it, I just that part breaks my heart every time. And that that heartbreak turns into frustration. And that's the part that I think makes me upset, is that part at the end, when they just don't want to. But telling people to stop, they're going to keep doing it anyway. <laughs> uh, the guys who got a million image pitches and a million like um, things they want to sell to the sci-fi network and whatever. like They're never going to slow down. Why even pretend that I can come up with a pithy saying that's going to make them stop? They're not going to.
0: So for people who are kind of in the middle where they're neither unhelpfully hurling Mm -hmm. themselves like a moth against a light bulb, but Mm -hmm. nor are they completely unwilling to do anything. Uh, Mm -hmm. It takes, as you said, it takes a long time to make a book and it's Mm -hmm. a lot of work. Uh, And so a lot of cartoonists are very busy. And so, for instance, uh, I had this one author where she sat down and she actually talked to the marketing person who was working on her book and was like, I want to make sure that I can give you things Uh, you know, if you need artwork for stuff that kind of comes up without a lot of notice, or if there's things you know you're going to need, let's sit down and make a big list both of all the stuff you know you're going to want. Like I'm going to want a piece of artwork for this many days out from the release date, or I'm going to want a piece of artwork to promote this giveaway that I want to do, but also, Hey, can you, you know, I, can you just do like spot art of these characters? So I just have it. And so they had this whole plan, um, so that she could kind of do this when she had time, and then he had it when he needed it. And there wasn't a lot of, oh shit, I just got asked for a piece of spot art for this magazine thing. Can you give it to me tomorrow kind of thing? Other, other things like that that authors can kind of do to be sort of proactive to kind of make your life easier and also their life easier. Because especially when people have day jobs or really aggressive deadlines, like it can get kind of a little hairy in there.
2: Well, I think I, I think yeah, I think the planning ahead for that like that is so it's just super super invaluable. And I think you know the emergency that happens today is is not really an emergency. Like this is part of the job, you know that should be planned. And when you're and again, it's part of that is the negotiation and uh, you know of how you're going to get paid and how this is going to work. Like when you're coming up with that advance and you're coming up with the money that you get paid and how much you charge, I think too too often cartoonists like they have this like. They focus on the nine to five of making the thing, but they need to acknowledge that like, you know what, your your advance and your salary needs to cover that period of time where you're going to just be making stuff to promote the thing. You know, like you need to incorporate that into your planning. It, it is not a surprise. It is going to happen. If this is not your first time at the rodeo making a book – then you you have no excuse you know this is coming you know they're going to ask for this stuff so include that in your schedule if it takes you four months to make a book then you actually need to plan for living five months on that book because you're going to have a whole month where you're just doing stuff you're doing interviews you're doing blogs you're doing you're making videos or whatever you're 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 doing the thing and that needs to be incorporated into this plan. Like if you've got if you can make 4 months out of your life to make a book, then you can add an extra month on there to do the part that's going to make that book sell and make it a success so that you can make more books so that you can ask for more money next time so that you can have more of a life and more of a wiggle room. You know, these it's not a surprise. You know, it's like a rainy day that you know is coming. So you have to have an umbrella now in advance, you know.
0: I turned my book in like about two weeks ago, I'm recovering to become a human being again. Mm -hmm. And I'm almost done with that process. Uh And once I am a human again, after Thanksgiving, I'm going to then start making the postcards to do my pre-order promotion and all that other stuff. Because it's like, all right, well I turned book two in, now I have to finish doing all the
2: promo stuff for book one.
1: The rainy day is right on the horizon.
2: Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a rainy day where you've been told in advance This is when the rainy day is coming. This is how long the rainy day is going to last. And these are the people that are going to help you with that rainy day. And it does pay off. That's the other thing. You're not asking somebody to do something for no reason.
0: And it sounds like part of what you're saying is also that if this is your first time, or maybe you're making a big shift from a smaller publisher to a big publisher or between genres, that maybe, for instance, talking to the person, you're either your editor or a marketing person, if you're working with one already about this kind of thing like hey what kind of stuff might i be doing in the next 6 months or whatever that i might not be thinking of like i was thinking about going to you know bermuda for 3 weeks right before my publication date to relax that's a great plan right and your publicist or your marketing person might say no you're going to be on the phone with a million magazine people mm-hmm. the 3 weeks before your book so go to bermuda maybe 6 months after your book comes
1: out So Tucker, if, if people are listening to this podcast and they think your variety of jobs sounds amazing, they're interested in getting readers to books, want to do some marketing, what sort of jobs are there?
2: Um, I mean, it's, it's, well, I assume you're hiring people right now. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Um, you should contact the host of this podcast, Gina Gagliano, (laughs) uh, as she builds her team. Um, Next year, I mean, it's, you look at the people who are making the things that you like and you kind of go after them. I mean, I, I have a hard time with this one because, you know, I, I remember when we were interviewing people for a position at Nobrow, and it was like, I mean, it's just like, it was intense. It was, it was really intense. The, the, the amount of people who come in who are just super, super qualified. We had this one, this pop-up kiosk in uh, the Subway. And it was this like crazy pop-up mall thing. And just the people who came in for that particular position who were people who made it clear to me that their end goal was that they hoped to work at No Brow or at a comics publisher someday. And they, wa- they didn't want to make comics. They, wanted- they were like me. They wanted to work in comics but not necessarily make them. Um, and those people were so qualified. I mean I had a woman who she, – she was more qualified for my job. And she was asking for that. So it's it's tough. There are a lot of people who really want these positions. Um, it's How do you get a job? You get a job the same way you get a job anywhere else. You just got to be super persistent. I wish, I wish there was a silver bullet for that one, but I don't really think there is. I think it's like you just go after these jobs and you get them. Um,
0: it sounds like be involved in the community and let people know that you want this kind of job so that <laughs> when the opportunity comes up, they think of you as part of it.
2: The editors and publishers for a lot of these companies are pretty accessible, you know, Um, in the world that I work in, in the place that I work in. Although I would say even like Mark Siegel is somebody that I've talked to multiple times at shows. I think you just have to figure out who the publishers are that you want to work for and then go after those places. Um, I mean, I I don't know. That's a tough tough one to answer, Gina. How would you answer that one? Uh Uh,
1: I think all the things that, that you and Ali said are very accurate that there are jobs that a lot of people want, especially entry-level jobs. And being persistent, being active, building up your resume by doing other related work, um, that is all great steps. And then also, really, I just got my first job in comics publishing by being at the right place at the right time so there's just that element too you know it's publishers looking for entry-level positions may have one open once every two years maybe once every five years and you just have to be that person who's there paying attention and available at that point so that said now that you have this job
2: what is your favorite part of doing this job
1: yeah. How are things at Consortium? Is, is Minneapolis awesome?
2: I love my job. I do. I love going to work in the morning. And um, I mean, I, I was I said this not too long ago to a friend of mine. Um, the way my personality operates is that I can kind of ignore what's going on because i'm thinking about the next thing but i'm trying to acknowledge right now is like this is i think the best that life could possibly be because i get up in the morning and i love going to my job and i'm excited to go to my job and then when it's done at the end of the day i love coming home to my wife and my daughter and I, i i don't know what else you can ask for you know the people in my life that are close to me you know uh are are healthy and happy to see me and the people that i work with we are working together to get Mm -hmm. things that are being made by people that no one else is making out into the world. And I, I don't want to take those things lightly and act as if there is something better than this coming. This is as good as it can possibly be this is as good as a, a, a life and a task as one could have. I get to be a small part of what gets Rebecca Solnit's books out into the world, what gets Eve Ewing's books out into the world. Today I'm, I'm dealing with a little thing and I may get to be a part of a thing that will get Eve Ewing to a show so that the people who love her work can meet her and talk to her about her new book, which is a book about, you know, uh, Chicago in 1918. Um, you know, and, and I get to work with a small publisher called hazy dell who is a you know the identical twins and one other person and they make these little board books that they were selling by hand in the pacific northwest to a few different stores and now it's become a legitimate publisher and now it's going to be sold you know throughout the country you know when people make these the clamoring as they should in this day and age about like working with um uh diverse authors or people of color or women you know i work And I work with publishers and that's all that they make and that's all that they've made for years. And, um, and that's very uh, exciting to kind of be that person who's in there. Um, and I loved, I loved every minute of working at No Brown Flying Eye. Um, and I took this job because I knew it was going to be a challenge and, and it is a challenge. Uh, but it's just really neat to be around this much stuff And to get to see it go out into the world at a time when I feel like people are really receptive to it and people really want it, you know. I mean, like, I mean, Gina, you've been a part of that too. Uh, This stuff just wasn't here, you know. I mean, these little girls who want to read comics about their issues and the things they feel and the things they want and the things they know—those little girls have been around forever. But the the thing that they wanted wasn't around. And then when it did come around there was nobody was doing the job of getting it to them and there was a bunch of stumbling blocks in the way and now those stumbling blocks are falling away so fast you know and i don't know it's just exciting uh, a lot of the people who i who I work with and
0: who I'm friends with uh are very deeply involved in the queer comics community and it's a mm-hmm. very similar situation whether're literally making the books that they wish they had when they were kids which mm-hmm. is really nice to be involved with personally and to watch other people doing because it was not i mean i'm I'm, I'm like gonna be thirty eight in february so I've been around a while and mm-hmm. the industry has changed significantly in the time that I've been paying attention to it
2: yeah i mean it's just it's it's really become the thing that it 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 always could have been, but it's just happened and it's happened so fast. And I I mean it, that the thing about what I do now is I feel like I have to keep up, um, and it's hard to keep up. But it's just so many so many different places are like opening up to art forms, and I, I don't know what's the favorite. I don't have a favorite part of my job. I really like what I do.
1: It sounds like you just like your job, which is nice. Yeah. Uh, I'm so happy it's all it's all working out. So Tucker, is there anything else that we didn't talk about that you want to mention about marketing, about consortium, about comics being awesome?
2: No, I can't think of anything. <laughs> I can't
1: think of, no. um, and where can people find you online if they if they want to know more about all the stuff that you're doing?
2: Um, I don't really, I don't know. Um, I'm not um, active on. Twitter or Facebook. I have a blog where I have a where I post links to my uh, movie podcast that I do from time to time called Factual Opinion. That's kind of been my home for a long time online. LinkedIn, actually, I'm on LinkedIn. Tucker Stone at LinkedIn. The guy in Consortium, and um, and you can always get in touch with me there if you have any questions about um, Consortium. If you have any questions about whatever, that's fine.
1: And what's a good place for them to find Consortium?
2: Uh, cbsd.com. We're like everybody else in the world. We're overhauling our website, which takes longer when you're owned by a giant company and you have to work with their design department. But, um, cbsd.com. Excellent.
1: Well, thank you so much for doing this. It was great to talk to you.
2: Well, thank you so much for asking me to be on. And, and I, and I, I don't, I don't edit this out, Allison. I have, I've, I've said before to Gina, I've told you in person, and I, I think I've said it online before, but I I'm so, so grateful to you for the support you have given me and the insight you give me into this, this job. And I think, I think that the world, you know, that world that we're talking about, that we live in right now, you are a key point, point of the reason that that world exists. You are somebody who has been out there making this stuff available. And when I say this stuff, I mean just different kind of comics for different kinds of people for so long and And I'm just I'm I'm just really excited to see what happens next with your new gig at random and what it's like when you just have like I mean, I first second always had a a, a shit ton of power, but I just can't wait to see what happens when you have PRH behind you like that is just really this is just such an exciting time to be like a Gina watcher. She's gonna
0: destroy everyone, and I'm so excited. But like in a nice way, a good way.
1: (laughs) Oh, Tucker, you're you're so kind and thoughtful, and I really appreciate it. And I I also think of you as an industry powerhouse who's really out there changing things and putting in so much effort. And so I'm so excited to see what you do from your new Minneapolis home. (laughs) I think it's gonna be great.
0: A lot of snow, but also a lot of comics. No, let's not yeah. get into
1: that. Yeah, <laughs> it's the number one book city in the United States. Yep. Mm-hmm. So it's fun. You can put up with a little snow for that. It's fun. Thank oh. you for listening to Graphic Novel TK. In the next episode, we're going to be discussing publicity, so news, reviews, and events. It's an episode that's very much tied into all the stuff that we've talked about today we are going to explore some exciting publicity mysteries. It's
0: the other side of getting people to read your comics coin,
1: right? <laughs> it is indeed.
0: Graphic Novel TK is co-produced by Gina Gagliano and Allison Wilgus and is brought to you by The Beat. You can find our show notes along with other comics news and podcasts at comicsbeat.com. Our podcast graphics were created by Shivana Sokdeo. Our theme music is by Pottington Bear. You can follow us on Twitter at graphic novel TK or email us at GraphicNovelTK at gmail.com. Man, I, this is very inside baseball, but if you really want to throw a grenade into a room full of hardcore comics people, just say, like, what do you think of all ages as a term to describe comics and then leave? And there'll be like a fist fight ten minutes later.
1: (laughs) Okay, so it sounds like calling your book all ages is maybe one thing that authors shouldn't do Um, in in certain contexts. Yes. Are there other things?
2: I mean, there's there. If you're going to Comics Pro, say all ages. That's it's it's a code word that the people Comics Pro, um, you know, is a bunch of direct market comic book stores, and for them, all ages has meaning. All ages is like there's all ages. There's porn. And then there's everything else that we (laughs) sell. You know, like there's three categories, you know?